elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to An Elegant Weapon, episode 341. My name is Jay, J.M. Clark, Jay the Jedi Ross, Ross Jedi Jay, and as always, it's so wonderful to have all you beautiful babies back here with me in the L5J studios. This week's episode is brought to you by Source Point Press. For the finest independent comic books across the land, check out SourcePointPress.com or head to your local comic shop and ask for Source Point titles. Ten titles a month are coming through previews in Diamond. So go to your local comic shops and demand your Source Point Press titles today. This week's guest, speaking of Source Point Press, is a writer for Source Point Press. How many times this week can I say Source Point Press? Probably quite a few. Uh, Frank Gogol. Frank came up through the comics experience, which is Andy Schmidt, former Marvel editor's online comic book making school. A little while ago, they joined forces with SourcePoint uh, to bring you some fresh independent comic books. Basically, students who come up through the comics experience, once they finish a book, uh, if they feel it is deemed worthy, it is sent over to SourcePoint Press, who publishes and distributes the book. It's a very cool little relationship. Uh, And out of that came a book called Grief. Uh, Grief is a very cool book, looking at the stages of grief. Uh, It was put together by writer Frank Gogol. This week's guest... Uh, Frank has a brand new project coming out called Dead End Kids, so we sat down and we talked about it. Uh, Frank is a very driven, motivated, passionate individual. Uh, He works very, very hard, and he cares quite a bit, as you will hear. Um, So there you go. This week, please enjoy my conversation with SourcePoint Press writer Frank Gogol. What is going on, man? Not much. How you doing? Dude. <laughs> it actually worked out really good. I watched the end of the hockey game. All and right. enjoyed, enjoyed a couple adult beverages, so this should be good. Which game were you watching? Uh, I was uh, St. Louis versus uh, San Jose. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, either. I like San Jose. They're like the local team for me because I live in California now. Uh, but right. I'm a Boston fan. And had San Jose won and then won one more game, I could have watched Boston play san jose for the cup in san jose that would have been very exciting would have been. And i put a bunch of money aside for the tickets but i guess i'll just have to make comic right are you a big sports guy uh, i don't know big sports i'm a big hockey guy like I, I love boston and i love hockey um i'm sort of like b level c level on other sports like i like the niners and football and i like all the other boston sports teams except for the patriots but like i watch hockey games and then i watched the playoffs for other sports you see like i'm kind of a bad canadian because i'm not a huge hockey guy right you and every other <laughs> canadian at source point press well yeah it's weird i guess you know the geek genre and the hockey genre aren't big mixers here but it's supposed to be in our constitution and shit that we're supposed to like it so i don't know, <laughs> you know i try to be a rebel like i i can read a comic book and then go watch a hockey game or you know fight <laughs> um but yeah no i don't i don't know i don't like being put in a box like i played hockey growing up and i enjoyed it and 
it's a lot of fun. And I have like all, all four of my grandparents came from Boston and moved down to New Jersey. And that's how, where my parents came from. So like, I've got like this history with Boston sports. Right on. I, I, you know what I do get really into is like the tournament stuff. Like when team Canada's playing and just like the juniors or the worlds or something, or even the Olympics, like, I don't know, maybe it's cause there's like a time limit, but I can get really into like tournament hockey. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the big things but, that stops me from like really enjoying baseball is a, the games take forever. It's like they go for a sandwich between pitches. It's too long, but also yeah. it's like 180 games. Um, I like football because there's only like 16 a year and I don't have to spend like the whole time following it but hockey is a little more manageable you know, i'll watch it on my phone or on my computer while i'm at work and like you know sort of keep up with it without keeping up with it totally i wish i had the time to keep up with other weird stuff but there's, I, just, there's too many comic books dude, to read you're telling me like, <laughs> i i was i've been keeping numbers this year since uh january just to see how many comic books i've read in 2019 i'm up to like something crazy like uh Oh, 1200 or something like that already what I read about 30 a week <laughs> and that that like of new stuff and then i read like back issues of stuff that came out that i've never like i'm reading like sandman for the first time right now a little bit at a time in american vampire but uh so what do you do do you go to the shop and like treat it like a library no, or digital I, um, or i read uh, i write reviews for a site called outright geekery and I mean, that's that's really an overstatement. I've written a, a review in about a year, but they get like all the Marvel books and all the DC books and all the Boom books and everything for review. So I just go in there and I you know, every morning I'll read like five or six with my coffee as I'm waking up. Oh, shit. I didn't know you did that. Yeah, like I said, it's been a while since I've written for him. Um, I think they actually took me off of, like their Slack channel and everything. So I don't get the communications <laughs> anymore, but I still have their Dropbox. So I just. Right on. Yeah, that and I, I, I do buy weekly books still because I like to support the little guys. Um, I don't know if you know a lot about the retailers, but uh, Brian Hibbs is like – he's probably like the most infamous and famous retailer in the business, um, and he's my local shop guy. He's the one who like filed a class action lawsuit against Marvel for like something a long time ago, but like won a bunch of retailers, a bunch of money in court, and now he's very bullish. Uh, but he's also like a really good guy. Like he's super – He's right super on. well connected. Um, what shop is it? It's his? called Comics Experience, uh, comics with an X, not to be confused with Andy Schmidt's school. Uh, okay, I was about to yeah. say it. That's a they actually, huge coincidence. <laughs> I mean, this is how legit the guy is. They just had their 30th anniversary about a month ago, and Eric awesome. Stevenson from Image flew down unannounced to attend so he could shake the guy's hand and like, you know, shoot the shit with him for a couple hours and then flew right back to Portland. That's yeah. cool, man. It's, 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 it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, it's, they haven't done anything quite as legendary, but my local shop, uh, Altered States, same thing. They're coming up on 30 years. And, uh, it's awesome when you see a shop that's just, you know, made it that long. These guys are two brothers who started a shop like 30 years ago in like their early 20s. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but, uh, they they're they're in this one little block area here in Clarkson where I live, <clears throat> and they've been in a few different locations on the same block for various reasons. You know, just moving around, yeah. different rents and this and that. And they're in one place that's next to a restaurant. Uh, the restaurant I don't know what went down, some kind of arson, <laughs> but the stove exploded in the restaurant. 
and the force was so powerful it blasted the oven out the front door onto like the lakeshore road that it was on you know like everybody's got a lakeshore road you know what i mean when i say a lakeshore yeah. road right? i grew up on one actually yeah like main street kind of in a, like a little town mm -hmm. you know and uh yeah this oven blew out the fucking like 50 60 feet out the window onto the street <clears throat> and the one and the whole place catches on fire the one wall that the place was connected to was their classic comic wall oh no also that week they had decided to rebag and reboard the entire back catalog so most of their comics were sitting out open in piles That's the worst they lost 200,000 comic books and like just <laughs> out of control, that, right? That's, so, that's nuts. That's probably more than $200,000 worth of merchandise. Well, luckily, these boys were insured up the wazoo. That's good. That's good. And I asked them, I'm like, so, you know, was this hard to reopen? And they kind of laughed. They're like, yeah, we did not need to reopen whatsoever. Like, they had some, like, original, like, ten issues of Spider-Man and that's, shit. Like, they, that's great. They, like, it's it's a huge loss for the comics themselves, but these guys, they did all right because of the insurance. So they just reopened in another spot, but they're just so casual about it you, you know what, man? Sometimes you just got to roll with the punches. Like, I've seen enough bad shit in my life that I'm just like, you know what? It happens. Things get better. You know, being stressed out and, like, freaking out ain't going to make it better. You just sort of got to do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you take a lot of influence from uh, troubles in your past. So as you mentioned before, you're all four of your grandparents are from Boston. Yep. And they moved to Jersey at some point. Yeah, in the, uh, I want to say the early 50s, but it might be even a little bit earlier than that. They were all sort of second generation immigrants, so they came in the early 1900s. And where are they from? What is Gogol? Gogol is well. It's you know it's it's a bit of a mystery. There is a, there's a village in Germany named Gogol. There's a village in Poland named Gogol, and there's a village in Russia named Gogol. And I am all three of those things. Um, and as far as we can tell, <laughs> it was the Russian side of my family that that comes from. But there's like no way to be a hundred percent sure. Right. And the, the weird thing is I'm 75% Irish, so like this this is such a small part of my heritage, but it's such a big looming question. You know, curiosity gets you, man. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I have the same thing. I'm lucky. My family kept very very detailed records over the past few generations. And uh, I, you know, I got some real cool stuff to research. Like my great grandmother, when she first came over on the boat from Scotland with her uncle, when she was like twelve, we've still got her boarding ticket. That's for crazy. the boat. I was gonna say Clark, Clark yes. has got to be uh, Scottish. Clark is super, yeah, got, super the, Scottish. The, right? Yeah. No, I don't okay. have the e at the end. The e's actually what anglicizes it more. What uh, happened that makes was. Sense. Clark Clark is uh, it's ancient Latin uh, clericus yeah. right, and out of clericus uh, you've got the word you know uh, basically Clark and clerk, yeah. but the the clericus the Clark clan that split off into two clans so you had the McPhersons, and uh, which basically meant McParson which meant son of the parson, and. Uh, 
Oh, crap. What was the other one? It was uh, McPherson and uh, McClatic, which meant son of the cleric, right? Yeah. So those, so McClatic and uh, that, they both came out of the clericus, and then eventually it just, you know, dropped down to Clark. But then a bunch of Scots went to England from Scotland, and they started becoming clerks, like clerks, what would be modern-day clerks, right? They even called them clerks up in, like, the 1920s. Hmm. Uh, they, they still may do that somewhere, but they had the extra ink, and they wanted to be more anglicized, so they added the E to the end of Clark. Okay. So if you see the E, that's a much more anglicized version of the ancient Scottish Clark, yeah. right? Which is now like, you know, but there's your history lesson yeah, no, for the that's, week. That's, <laughs> that's wild. So um, I don't actually know a lot about most of my heritage. Like a lot of it is sort of pieced together and like a lot of internet research. My dad passed away when I was about a year and a half old. So like I didn't know anyone on his side of my family until I was – about 22 um his sister lives out here in california and i went down to san diego for uh a convention for school i ran my school's newspaper so it was like a journalism convention um and i met her and like built up that relationship and like she's been walking me through it for the last i guess nine years um but like i she's she's got a lot of like all the history recorded and she's been re really really industrious about that kind of stuff but i have no idea and then my mom never really told me that stuff and like she lost custody of me when i was like 11 or 12 so like i never i was never old enough to even be wondering about these things when i was with her so like i have very little idea about my family's history so i i'm super envious of you <laughs> That's, you know, I feel for you, man, because, I mean, I always wonder about that with my friends or family and members who are adopted and don't know their history. What, you know, that would drive me nuts. I would go on a quest. I would just, I, I would, I know I'd have this curiosity, like this undying need to know. So, you know, and I meet a lot of adopted people who obviously were raised by amazing parents, uh, so they just don't care. Right, they're like, I don't sure. know, you know, I I had parents, right? A so resentful, like I I I was adopted by my friend's family when I was in my teens, and like I honestly started to like resent my mom, and she was she was still around, then she passed away in 2007, so like this was I had a good seven years since like you know I wasn't living with her, but like you know you just sort of like probably as a defense mechanism push that shit away, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I I don't want to go too far with this. So you explain to me your childhood in terms that you're, of course, oh, comfortable um, with because you, you seem to have, have been tossed yeah. around and had a bit of a difficult time. Your dad died when you were a year and a half? Yeah. Um, so uh, both of my parents – I mean – all right. So here's a real quick mini lesson in, in my history. Um, when my dad was – I want to say he was 25 or 26. He got hit by a U.S. Postal Service truck. Um, it was pretty banged up and won a pretty big lawsuit. Um, and, uh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Just to bring a little <laughs> lightness to the situation without being offensive. I find it kind no, of funny that you're about to tell us a story of how your dad passed away. It starts with getting hit by a U.S. postal truck, but that's not what killed no, him. No, no. And you, you know, actually, <laughs> both of my parents actually died as a result of getting hit by a car, but not because of being hit by the car. Um, but, yeah, my dad got hit by a postal truck. Um, he won a lawsuit, and he had, you know, for a, what was a, essentially like a lower middle class guy who was in his 20s and the 80s, a, a nice chunk of change. 
Um, and he, yeah, when he lived in a pretty urban area, he grew up in like Newark area, New Jersey. So, uh, he had, uh, right. you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like the best place to be. Um, so it sort of, all that money attracted kind of the wrong people. And he got into, um, I, everyone smoked weed back then, like no big deal, but like when he had a little bit of money, like the people with the stronger stuff started rolling around, you know, like, uh, you know, like uppers sure. and downers and, and pills and shit. So, uh. It's actually my mom told me this story, so I know that this much is true. Um, the the very first time he he did, um, oh, fuck, I'm not gonna be able to remember which drug it was, but it was a pill based drug. Uh, he OD'd um, and he ended up dying of the overdose. I was about a year and a half old at the time, so I want to say I was 89. Wow, that's rough. Man. Uh, you know, like like I said, like I. Uh, you sort of you try learn to resent these things as the defense mechanism, and for a very long time, I was like super mad about it, and you know, pretty fucked up about it. But you know, I'm in I'm in my 30s now. I've had like the vast majority of my life to really think about this. I met my aunt in the time in between, and you know, sort of got her side of everything and like you know the facts. And look, you know what? I feel bad. Like I wish the things were different, but like the the truth is like you know. I could have lived a very different life if, like, he didn't pass away and he was the guy. Is me like I? I could also be some. You know, I'm not saying it would have been, but I could also be some kind of like bum. You know what I mean? Like I could be popping pills and like doing shit that isn't good for me. And oh, for that sure. Was, I mean, on some level, gave me some level of hustle. Like I, I learned that I needed to take care of myself and and do things to to better myself. So silver lining, like. I ended up being hopefully a better person than I would have been. I <laughs> try to be positive. No, I hear you, dude. Look, I was born in a little town, and this doesn't compare at all, but I, I can kind of get a sense of what you're talking about. Relevant. I was born in a little – yeah. I was born in a little town, St. Catharines, about an hour from here. It's near Niagara Falls, right? right. Um, tiny little town. It's where they shot A Christmas Story. That's like its biggest claim I to fame. I go there right now. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. I've actually played on a park with the pole Didn't and everything. So I didn't. It was summertime, unfortunately. Right, well. But uh, <laughs> that would have been gross. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, so I I'm I'm a, I'm your typical '70s product where two kids, 18 and 19, banged and had the kid they didn't mean to because they were out drinking beer at a bush party somewhere kind of thing, right? So I'm the result of one of those typical stupid 70s teenager situations. So my mom had me when she was like 18. And my dad, uh, you know, not exactly a winner, right? Uh, You know, kind of a wannabe biker alcoholic. And that never changed. So uh, my parents divorced when I was about two. So I, I... Like, there was shared custody. Like, every other weekend I was supposed to see him, but I never saw him. I went to my grandparents' house, right? And so I grew up really close to them, but never really knew my father. He wasn't, like I say, he wasn't a winner, right? So then when I was nine, my parents, or my mom and soon-to-be stepdad, moved us out of St. Catharines and then up here closer to Toronto in a much better environment and a much better situation with a lot more opportunity. 
So it's kind of the same thing. I had, what if they had stayed together, right? What if I had been raised by these two kids, this one alcoholic uh, biker bum from St. Catharines? Uh, things could have turned out way differently. I think about that all the time. And also what you say about carrying the anger around, I was pissed. For many years, I was pissed that this dude just taught me, didn't have time to be a father. Like I always felt like it would have been better if I didn't know him at all, right? Um, unfortunately, I knew him just enough to know he what a dick he was. That's <laughs> ah, too bad, man. So, yeah, but it's okay though because I ended up having this awesome stepfather who was there since I was like three years old, and they brought me to a better place and gave me a better life. And uh, like you say, I'm I'm older now. I'm in my forties, and I can uh, let that go. Especially being a father myself now. Now that I'm actually a father, it makes you just totally forget about and let go of all that stuff because you're so focused on it not being you, like you not becoming it yourself, right? Yeah. Like that's the, the best thing coming out of having a shitty dad usually, hopefully, is it makes that kid want to be a good dad themselves if they were in a decent environment, you know what yeah, I mean? No, I, I do 100%. Like if you look at all the stuff I've written and all the stuff I'm writing right now, like this, like the effects of of a parent on a child, and and the effects of becoming a parent, like are probably the strongest theme of, of things I write. I'm writing a a book actually now because I'm still writing it, but it's essentially about a woman who wants to have an abortion because she grew up without parents and sees how fucked up like she is as a result of that and doesn't like even want to risk dying in childbirth and leaving this child on its own um and the story of sort of how she comes around and realizes that like you know the mark of a good parent is like being willing to you know to die for your kid you know what i mean um still that's a heavy moment yeah and, and this is wrapped this <laughs> is wrapped up in like uh like an aliens and giant robot story so like it's 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 more palatable than it sounds um but like pretty like as much as i say i've worked through some of this stuff and like i'm cool with it like it it's pretty much at every level of my writing still like dead end kids the new book is is very much about the way like our parents fuck us up and like how as as kids we have to find each other and sort of take care of one another it's it's wild i I don't try to write these books this way and this is sort of what always comes to the top well i mean the the thing you're going to write the best about is the thing you know about best right like you know unless you've just got some super cool miraculous imagination out there that you know not everybody has you've got to tap your own well right yeah, no, and whatever's in there is whatever's going to come out so I you know so when do you start tapping this well like okay so your parents have both unfortunately passed away uh your mother a bit later than your father and uh you mentioned it was your friend's family that kind of took you in yeah and... yeah um so like and this again sort of ties into the book um my uh my buddy harry who I, I i've known since i was probably four or five like you know just riding my bike down the street one day i saw this other kid about my age age said you know what's up and like we we've been friends ever since he's in my wedding party this september when i get married i mean like it's you know it's been a done deal for the last 25 26 years um and like i was close with him and his his parents were good they were they were pretty religious and they're catholic so like you know they they're very into charity and taking care of people and like you know they obviously knew me and cared about me so they were very gracious and and took me in and 
it was it was uh that was like the end of like my middle school year so like seventh grade eighth grade and um and then the early part of this is this still in jersey yeah they lived two doors down from me growing up like this is oh okay that close yeah, yeah. like i could uh i could spit on this house from my house it's a weird weird way to <laughs> so when does when does the writing start um i didn't so it started unofficially probably in high school actually i wrote a little bit even in, in like middle school like i had you know i'd i'd take like poetry classes and whatnot and my teachers would be like oh you're pretty good and I, they didn't know what the fuck they were talking about but they encouraged me enough to to sort of have it be a seed in the back of my mind um and then i got to high school and my high school was pretty legit um it was one of the better high schools in in the country in fact um but uh they had block scheduling so instead of sort of eight classes a day uh for a full year you had four classes a day for half a year and it was sort of on a semester schedule similar to college um so what that let me do was take a lot of my sort of general education classes up front and i was able to front load my schedule for the first two years of high school with um the general education classes like, you know, English one through four and math and all that. Uh, and that freed up the second half of my high school education for sort of honors and AP and more advanced classes. So I took a lot of creative writing classes, a lot of literature classes. And like, I knew I loved this stuff, but I didn't really know that I wanted to write for a while. Um, and I can actually pinpoint for you a couple of moments, like where I realized, like I wanted to write. I took a class, my, junior year so you know third year of high school uh and it was called honors major themes and we read a book called their eyes were watching god by zora neale hurston and there's this scene in the book it's about a, a black woman in the south uh i want to say in the early 1900s and she's got an abusive husband and she lives in the south and she's she's very repressed on like socio levels and economic levels and in lots of different ways and there's this scene where she sort of says fuck it and like she walks out on her husband and she decides to like take control of her life and she um for the novel or for the length of the novel up until then her hair is up in this very tight bun and and when she does this this sort of freeing act and walks out she like lets her hair down she's got this very luxurious glorious you know mane of you know really long thick black hair and you know it sort of tumbles down and you know it's this big metaphor for for her being free she's freeing herself she's freeing her hair and like when i realized like that you could do sort of metaphors like that with words and like tell stories that way I, like my mind was fucking blown like i just <laughs> like and then i started like looking back and all the other stuff i'd ever read it's like oh man this shit's everywhere i need to do this this is this is cool because it's it's powerful like there's a I'm going to like sort of misquote some of this, but Alan Moore talks about like what magic is and everyone knows Alan is a, he's a little off and he thinks he's a wizard and that's fine. But he, he has this really great idea that magic is this ability to sort of create change without doing anything in the physical world and like using words to, to create change like that, like essentially emotions, like, you know, when you read a poem you get to the end of the poem and you feel something like that's essentially what magic is it's like creating change without having to do anything but use like your mind and your talent and like that's a really like sort of woo woo flowery way to talk about like what what language can do but like that's sort of what i feel about it like and so when i write i 
I try to tap into that. Like I always want to like at the end of something like make somebody pissed off or make somebody like feel sad or happy or just like evoke some kind of emotion. I think that's the point of writing to sort of induce change. Like you have a character change at the end of a book, right? Like, you know, John Constantine at the beginning of a story starts off as a prick and then he meets this person and they go on this sort of investigation, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, he's a little bit better than he was when he began. But as readers, we're, we feel something, we feel that change. We feel, sad when he he has the opportunity to change at the story and he doesn't or we feel sort of gratified and, and happy for him when he does make that leap and it pays off and he becomes a little bit of a better person so this is all a very long way to say that the writing sort of started uh when i was in high school and i was taking these creative writing classes and these these literature classes and realizing sort of what the power in writing and and literature is Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it, it can tap into you personally in so many ways. I remember when I re discovered creative writing as a kid, uh, for me, it was like a toy where I, it gave me the chance to play with things, uh, in my own way that kind of already existed. Like, uh, like, <clears throat> I, I love to tell stories in a whole bunch of different ways. You know, I grew up an actor and podcaster and all this stuff. And creative writing for me was a chance to take the things I loved because I'm not a super original guy. Like, I can take characters that you created and I can tell a, a, a fuck of a story with them. I can come up with some cool ideas. Like, I got some Star Wars fan fiction that'll blow your fucking mind. I'm ready for it. But... <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not like a character guy. Like I, I don't use writing like like in your way where you know it's uh it's this personal outlet in a way. For me, it was more like I once wrote a story basically about the Universal monsters all getting together and having this big party in this castle. And this was in like grade three, right? But the the part that I remember being so crazy fun about it for me was getting to take those characters that I loved because I was going through a huge Universal monster phase. And putting them all in a story together and dictating that story, for me, that was that was the blast, right? Like, I love taking these Star Wars characters. So it's, uh, it's always intriguing to me to see when it can be used uh, as such a healing outlet as well, you know? And, and, and basing things on your experiences gives it so much more weight, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like... Uh... Some of my earliest writing was was sort of fan fiction. I guess it would be categorized as fan fiction now. And it's because like I didn't have sort of the tools in the toolbox yet to develop my own characters or that the sort of sense of confidence in my writing to, to think that I could. Um, but I mean, any kind of writing, whether it's you know, fan fiction or, or poetry or, or the, you know, the, the, an award winning comic book like Brian K. Vaughn would write like on some level it's cathartic and, and, and therapeutic and, and, and a creative outlet of, of some kind, right? Like it's, it's not, it's an act of creation no matter like whether. And a brave one at yeah, that no, too, absolutely. you know, whichever outlet you're taking, like look at Dan Doherty, right? Like his fucking, his entire life is right there in the Beardo comic strip, but he took a lighthearted way at telling his story yet still on a very personal level you know what i mean like even his is more of a comedic kind of comic strip 
still, you know, he, he let out a lot of things. He shared a lot of private moments in his life through that medium, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, so I think I have a personal belief that you have to be at least a little bit screwed up to want to tell stories. Like, I think there are people who tell stories who aren't screwed up, but I think the people who, like, I mean, I think of people like Hemingway and, uh, Oh God, his name's escaping me. The guy who wrote uh, "Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas." Like, I, I think of these these. Oh, Hunter. Thompson, yeah. That's it. And I, I just think, yeah. like, I feel like, you know, there, there's a, like I said, a therapy to it for the person writing. Like, you've got these demons, and you have to get them out. And and that's, I know, I know that's true for the people I just named. I know it's true for me. I think it's probably true for Dan. Um, and like, you know, I. But but I think it's all like I think of it in terms of like evolution, right? You have a bird, and and the environment around the bird changes, and the bird either has to evolve or die. It has to learn to adapt and and have new skills and and be a different kind of bird than it was. And like as as people, when you go through hardship, you have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to to grow and rise above the sort of things that are getting thrown your way. And when you do that, like you build up demons and like. You know, but it also it makes you stronger. Sort of probably makes you a little bit more bitter. Um, but people who go through that stuff have stories to tell because they've been through stories in a weird way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. that's not to like take anything away from anyone who's had like a really good sort of uneventful life. Like God bless them. Like that's that's what we're all striving for. Like stability and and comfort and not having to worry about like where the next meal is coming from or or, or, you know, if you're going to have a roof over your head in a few weeks, but like, you know. Yeah, writing's a good, easy outlet. So that's why I think a lot of people are, you know, they're kind of attracted to it. The ones who are damaged and need to get it out. It's it's a very personally expressive way that all you need is a pen and a pencil kind of thing. You know, it's uh, it's cool. Were you a huge reader as a kid? You know, I have a love-hate relationship <clears throat> with reader, reading. Like, like I said, I read... Uh, like 30 comics a week. Um, so like, you know, I'm on, I'm on course for like probably 5,000 this month or this year rather. Um, I, <laughs> and this may be an effect of reading comics, like, you know, 20 page chapters once a month. I have a really hard time reading novels. Um, like I, I really? I'm a very big Dickens fan. Like Charles Dickens, I think is probably the, one of the greatest writers of all time. I like Shakespeare. Like I, I studied literature in college and, and, and a lot in high school. So like I have an appreciation for these things. I've read most of like what's considered the, the canon. Um, but like, it's just painful. Like a lot of like small font on like thin pages for, for thousands of pages. Like it's just, it's overwhelming to me and it feels like, oh, yeah? it feels like work. Like I do, um, I, I sort of set myself guidelines for like how to tackle books and like I'll read 10 pages from a book every night before bed. And if it's a 300 book, 300 page book, I'll be done in a month. And like, I sort of do it in micro installments sort of like you would a comic book, like, you know, Spider-Man 20 pages a month for 12 months. And then you've got like two arcs. Um, but like, it really is laborious for me. Um, except for, a, really, except for a I'm so surprised to hear that. Know, and, and you know, what? It's, it's sort of, it's <laughs> fucked up because I really love reading it's just painful. Um, like some, of, but there are a few authors who sort of are exceptions to that. Um, Hemingway is one of them and he, he has a very specific prose style that like is digestible. It's not super flowery. It's pretty like to the point his stuff tends to be shorter. Um, Dan Brown, whose stuff I don't really like, 
I find very digestible because he writes very short chapters and like it, it, is, it, yeah, it builds up yeah. momentum and like I feel like I'm not reading a lot. Um, thriller books like like a, like a Jaws or a Tom Clancy like those sort of tend to fly by and I can sort of enjoy those. Uh, anything uh, Michael Crichton wrote before he passed away, uh, and, and again that's short chapters with a lot of momentum. Um, the one exception to the sort of short chapters rule would be uh, an author named Pat Conroy who passed away a few years ago, but he wrote The Prince of Tides and uh, The Lords of Discipline, both of which were movies in like the 70s and 80s. Um, he's got like a really – he writes longer books. They're five and 600 pages, um, but his prose style is almost poetic, and it's, it's very, very flowery, but it's also like – content that's very interesting to me he writes about sort of like these very damaged men who aren't like a man's man who end up in these very sort of man's man situations like the lord's discipline is about uh, a very left-leaning guy in the i want to say late 60s who ends up at a military institute and like sort of his clashes with like the system and stuff like that but also written in this very flowery prose so like it's very i don't know it's it's so different that it's engrossing um, but I'm, well, well, that's I think what you're saying there is uh, one of the reasons I'm a big fan of Kipling, uh, Richard Kipling. Not too flowery, very very uh, expressive, yet very uh, very descriptive at the same time. You know, like I used to love reading the Jungle Book too and stuff because it it, it, it as as fun as it was to read these amazing words put together in this poetic way he made you feel like you were there like you could smell the embers in a fire or you could feel the dew on the leaves in the jungle like he was he just he just took you there right yeah. no, that, that makes yeah that's makes yeah i didn't i didn't write a shitload when i was a kid i was more of a more of a drawer but i read voraciously and from a very young age i'm not sure if it was just my family's kind of the same way my mother but when i was young young i started uh actually my grandfather was a huge influence uh because he had read me the mowgli stories when i was very young and a bunch of other rudyard kipling and i i just started getting into the classics so when i was very very young i read like uh, robin hood and call of the wild and moby dick and last of the mohicans and uh like you say a lot of dickens i read oliver twist and david copperfield and i read all of these before like grade five wow and yeah i just i couldn't get enough i just i read and i read and i read and i think it was a perfect storm of the fact that i happened to be you know, an interested reader, but also in this environment that was very nurturing. Like these books were everywhere, and my grandparents and my mother just read all the time. Like it wasn't like you read to read; you just you read instead of watching TV, kind of thing. When I was young, so I, I had that heavy influence. And then my mom, uh, she was a big Stephen King fan. So she always had Stephen King books lying around, and I'll never forget the summer that I read it. Dude, it is so Be good. Did, it is huge as well. No, like you were talking before, pages. yeah, like laborious. It was like three months of like my grade six life. Dude, <laughs> I, I believe it. Like when I read it, I like I said, like reading is very laborious for me, and I read this uh, maybe about four years ago. For the first time, and I had to sort of alternate between the physical book, the ebook, and the uh, audio book, like, sort of cycle <laughs> yeah, through to yeah. keep it fresh for me. But like I, 
you know, for, for how I read these days, I burned through it in probably like maybe six weeks, like like pretty quick compared to how I read other books. Like it, it, and that Stephen King is one of the more engrossing authors, and I should have named him earlier. He's one of the ones who I can read sort of over and over and over again. Like I'm working my way slowly through his sort of back catalog. I just read uh, Pet Cemetery not that long ago. I'm reading The Stand right now uh, very slowly. I've been reading since December, and I think I'm on Chapter 6. But like, yeah, King King's one of those guys who, who really – gets it like his stuff's not too flowery but when it is flowery like it's exactly the right imagery and it's like haunting and, and disturbing and like i mean like i don't get chills from anything i'll watch any horror movie and not flinch some of the stuff he writes like like it's just the one little word choice and it just it fucks you up totally yeah man and that book was like physically huge like i had the actual like hard copy so, you know, think about it. I'm this little, like, what, 10, 11-year-old kid. <laughs> this giant-ass fucking – every night I'm pulling out this Bible, yeah, and I'm just like fucking – I can barely hold the thing oh, up. That's, that's... Where, so when do comic books enter your life? So uh, triple penetration. Probably not the best way to say that. Um, <laughs> all right, so I was born in 87, so I – uh, was a little late to the. My sister was, or sorry, my brother was born in '87, I... so that makes you 30... 31. 31, yes. All right. Too late. And he just, sorry, just I just found out he went to South America for nine months wow. with his girlfriend. Uh, yeah, they just went on a crazy trip and they just came back and are engaged. That's nuts. So, uh, congrats yeah. to them as much as congrats to you. Uh, same thing yeah, being yeah. engaged and such but anyway sorry i digress <laughs> go on <laughs> um so um like i said i was born in 87 and i was a little late to the party but uh my favorite thing when i was a kid like ages like one to four or five were, were the ninja turtles like the the cartoon that started in 87 and ran through like 91 or 92 that was that was my jam i had every ninja turtle toy ever like i was going <laughs> through a, a baby album that my mom put together the other night with my uh, my fiance and my two soon to be parents in laws, and like I was looking at like every picture I had Ninja Turtle shit. I even had a camera that took pictures that like put little Ninja Turtle insignia on the photos when you printed them out. <laughs> so I, I was Sweet. obsessed. And like back then, I didn't realize it was a comic book first, but like that was sort of my introduction to comic books. And then in the early nineties, you had X-Men and Spider-Man cartoons and Batman, the animated series. And I watched all of that and, and power Rangers. Like I was the superhero genre was sort of always my jam. Um, I didn't pick up my first comic book that I know of until 1997. It was, uh, the Marvel DC Algamam universe, uh, comics. It was, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, what a terrible <laughs> comic to start on. It was a uh, spider. Boy. Uh. So it was Superboy crossed with Spider-Man and picked up. It was issue number one. Um, I don't remember reading it. I remember buying it at a uh, Rite Aid pharmacy off of a spinner rack and thinking what, what absolute trash, even at, in 97, I was 9 or 10. So, like, even as a 9 or 10-year-old, I knew that that was garbage comics. Um, and then I didn't really get back into comics, like, reading physical comic books until 2006. 2006, yeah. I was a uh, senior, so fourth year in, in high school. 
uh, and uh, Marvel Civil War was about to kick off. I believe it was like April area of 2006. And my local newspaper sort of covered that Civil War was going to be a thing and that Spider-Man was going to get a new red and gold costume. And I was like, oh, that's pretty dope. Let me go check that out. And a new comic shop had opened in my town. And so I went in and I bought that Spider-Man 528. It was the uh, Joe Straczynski and I forget who was on art, but uh, it was the first red and gold costume. And I dug it. It was the uh, Peter Parker. There was some talent on those books, man. Like, like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I bought yeah. every tie-in to Civil War, and I bought three copies of the main series each issue, and I wasted a ton of money. But it was sort of a good experience because, like, I, I went all in and and got the whole breadth of the uh, Marvel universe in one go. I think it was like 103 issues total. Um, but I read Miss Marvel, and I read Thunderbolts, and I read you know, Captain America, Black Panther. You know, I read all of it, and like it was sort of my deep dive education into it. And like after that, I I was hooked. Like I spent hours and hours and hours, unbelievable number of hours on Wikipedia, reading up on like Wakanda and and, and the history. You're so lucky that you had I, that I, shit, I man. You, like, and, and we can talk <laughs> about this in a minute, but like we live in an age where like how to write comic stuff exists in bulk online. And like I can't even imagine like for for guys like Al Ewing and 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 Paul Aller and people who are just you know maybe about ten years older than me like when they were trying to figure out how to write comics like this shit wasn't online there weren't books about it like no. I don't know how people <laughs> learned how to write comics um, but yeah no the internet is amazing when it's not being used as a weapon to hurt people <laughs> yeah it's uh, it was it was a different time back then man it was. Uh... You know, it's just uh, before I forget, it's uh, Dark Claw. Do you remember the Batman Wolverine yeah, crossover? Yeah, yeah, he was like a vampire from that Wolverine, mix. and he had like yellow. We got this uh, cosplayer here, <laughs> this great guy Doug, and uh, he did a Dark Claw cosplay for Toronto Comic Con a couple of months ago, right? <laughs> and it was amazing because I watched him online go through the whole process of making this thing, and then at the show as he's walking around. Ty Templeton is a local, so Ty Templeton's always at all the shows, and Ty Templeton created Dark Claw. That's got to be pretty <laughs> So when he saw the cosplay, he lost his mind. <laughs> Ty was like, "Are you fucking Dark Claw?" <laughs> that's, that's so, uh, but yeah, but back then, like you say, as far as uh, where you would learn to do anything, my God, it was uh, you had to search stuff out. I'm in a very, very spoiled spoiled environment when it comes to comic creation um the history of comics in toronto is it's 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 up there you know it's with uh you know it kind of rode along with new york city along the way as far as what was going on so you know you've always had this huge opportunity here as far as uh art galleries art schools uh art colleges uh, just people in the industry, in the community who are here to help you. Uh, so, you know, being in Ontario, it's still to this day, like how many of the guys who work for the top two are live within an hour of me is absolutely insane. Like, you know, the Ken Lashley's, the Dave Ross's, the Ty Templeton's, the Jay Faybox, the Dave Finch's. Um, you know, the Adam Gorham's like I can go on and on and, you know, the whole raid studio, Ramon Perez, like oh, all those guys, all, they, yeah, stuff. they, I own a page of his Hawkeye. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that water. 
Yeah, they're all within an hour of me, that's, right? That's... So, yeah, we're in this incredibly spoiled environment, especially with Ty. Like 90% of the people from Canada who I have had on this show have been through the Ty Templeton comic book boot camp, which is Ty's, uh, you know, he offers a bunch of courses up here. And uh, like 90% of the people I know have gone through and benefited hugely from that experience. So it's got to be tough when you're in an environment, you know. At least you did, like you say. At least you had the internet, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and I grew up in Jersey, so like I wasn't super far from New York, and and right, you know, right. Um, and when I finally did like decide to start going all in on comics and like creating my own, like I was old enough and sort of well enough off to be able to travel a bunch and go to cons and meet people and stuff like that. Um, but like you know, Toronto sounds sounds dope. I need to. Need to get up there, and then you guys are sort of just right across from Detroit, which you know we both know is like the hub for indie comics, and it always has been. It's uh, yeah, it's 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 a bit of a mecca these days. Were you just at Motor City? I was, I was. right. This is my first. You time did make in, it out in Detroit. Uh, That's insane to me that that was your that we hadn't got you out. Yeah, there. well, Jesus. I mean, last year was my first year doing cons, and and Motor City was. I don't know. I guess it wasn't on my radar. I didn't realize, but uh, I made it a point to get out there this year. It feels like you've been on the scene longer than you have, but I've just seen your face so many times. I guess I've just gotten used to it. Yeah, well, you know what? (laughs) I guess that's better than than, than people getting pissed off at me, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, it's, uh,. Yeah, Source Point and Michigan. I've always said since the first time I went down there years ago that there's something in the water. There's something special that's going on there, and uh, it's 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 just it's unique. You know, there's lots of cool places with cool communities who are doing some very amazing stuff, but there's something special. It's it's really hard to put your finger on. It's like when I started this podcast eight years ago. Uh, I started, you know, getting online in the podcast community, and I made good friends online with this other show called Drunk on Comics. I, I know the show; it's really good. And I, yeah, and I was like, and, you know, got tight with these guys, Tony and Derek and Kevin and Matt, and uh, they invited me down to Motor City Comic Con like five years ago. And I was like, okie dokie. So, you know, got my first press pass for there, and I went on down and hung out. And I've been to a lot of Comic-Cons, but this was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Uh, to see a community of people this close and this tight and this uh, determined to hold each other up was something incredible. It was something new. It was something uh, beautiful that I hadn't experienced so, you know, my podcast audience for some reason got big first in Michigan and things grew. And then along comes Source Point Press, who at the time was nothing more than a little outlet for Steven and Travis, like Steve Sherrard, Travis and Josh Werner to put out their comic books. Like they just wanted to put out their own books. So they basically needed a banner for that and came up with Source Point Press. And so it's been so surreal to watch it go from four guys behind a table just trying to hawk like four comic books to what it is now. Like if anybody out there saw the source point table from Motor City Dude, Comic Con this weekend, giant. it's a block. block. It's a block it's a now. Block. And not only was it a block, it was a block with a, a games division on half of it, comics division on right. another half of it. We had, I think we had – 
60 or 65 different titles on the table. There were people constantly around the table. Um, and then just that same weekend, we had Dirk and Casey and, and Josh and uh, Drina in, in Vegas representing us at the, the – Which is crazy which is- for Motor City to – like, yeah, Motor City is like kind of the hometown of SourcePoint and everything. But it's still crazy to me that they had their most successful Motor City ever without the heavy hitters. Yeah, no, I mean without you know? Casey Hockenora <laughs> or, or any of the other books. Like, I mean that's you're, – you're, you're talking about like $1,000 less revenue. Like, right, like she's, right. She's, she's so, around. no, 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 and you don't want to fuck around with her. Either. <laughs> she's real hard. Yeah. So, okay, so we're at the point. Uh, you have discovered comics. You're kind of in high school. Uh, the writing thing has begun, swirling in your head. Source Point Press, in the meantime, is over in Michigan, starting to grow. Uh, we're starting to bring in guys like Bob Sally from Boston after we met him in C2E2. I'm leading this Canadian charge where we're bringing in guys like Sean Daly and Andrew Hahn uh, and Dave Bishop. So on your end, along comes a little outfit known as the Comics Experience. It's true. Which for anyone out there who doesn't know, Andy Schmidt. Andy Schmidt is a former uh, editor at Marvel and, and uh, was in fact – and IDW, yes, and in fact was involved in uh, working with Civil War and Civil stuff. War, so Andy started all, all of it. Winter lots Soldier. of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, a lot of Brubaker stuff. So um, Andy starts an online comic school called the Comics Experience. Now, how does that come to your attention? All right, so we gotta we gotta rewind a little bit. Um, so I finished high school. Um, I was right. 18. It's 2006. I was I was obsessed with comics. I went to high, uh, college, um, and I, I I knew immediately upon reading comics. That, Are you in California yet? Sorry, when do oh, you go Cal- to California? California is much later. That's that's a year and a half ago. Like, from, oh, so you haven't been out there very yeah, long. Yeah, no. I I've, at this point in, in history, as we're telling it, uh, I'm still in New Jersey. Um, I'm 18 and right. um, in college. Um, and I knew I wanted to write comics like I was obsessed. So I did everything I could for the tail end of my high school education and the entirety of my college education to prepare myself for a life in comics. I was a, an English major. I was a communications major. I had a graphic design minor. I had a creative writing minor. I ran my school's newspaper, which taught me about layout and, and packaging and, and sort of project management. Anything I could do that I thought would make me a better comic creator, I did. Like – and then I went on to get two master's degrees in, in English and creative writing. And I, I graduated from my second master's degree in 2012. And I put in what was essentially six more years of hard work in, in, in post-secondary education, making sure that I could be a good comics creator. And I, I tried writing scripts and I studied comics all throughout college. And then I graduated. And for three years, I didn't do dick. I got out of college, <laughs> I got a nine to five, and I got complacent as hell. In the meantime, I met my fiance, Catherine, um, you know, obviously my then girlfriend. Um, but we bought a house, we got a dog, we were chilling, and, and I talked a big game about wanting to make comics, but I didn't make any comics. I didn't put any track down. Um, and, and you know, I would constantly sort of have these false starts. So 
What were you nine to five and as? Uh, I worked at a couple different places. Um, I worked for my college for a while. Uh, my cousin was the uh, head of marketing, so I worked for her, and that's where I learned sort of marketing, copywriting, and uh, search engine optimization, and how to sort of you know build web pages and stuff like that. I was able to sort of pivot that experience into a full-time job doing um, search engine optimization for uh, an online marketing company where we had like 80 clients and. Okay, so you weren't just working at McDonald's. No, no, I and, and <laughs> okay. sort of in the back of my mind, I was sort of continuing this. How can I be better at comics? Every job I got was sort of in marketing and writing, and I was like, you know, what, what, where are the transferable skills? What can I do next to sort of make myself a better comic creator? But like, I wasn't a comic creator, so it was this weird sort of mental hoops I was jumping through convincing myself that I was doing the work but I was I wasn't um so 2015 rolls around and I'm at this uh software company in New Jersey called Commvault uh where I met my fiance and we were working together and I fucking hated it it was soul crushing it was a nine to five it was a big corporate machine paid really well had like bonuses and benefits and and like everything you could want from a job but I wasn't learning anything I wasn't growing and like for me, like I'd, I'd rather make no money learning than than sit there and make a million dollars, like not growing as a person. Like I just I can't I can't stop. I'm like a shark. I, I don't want to stop moving. Um, so I, you know, months and months go by. I'm constantly I hate this job. I hate this job. And I, my my girlfriend Catherine and I were sitting one night and I was like, I fucking hate this job. It's killing me. And she sort of thinks for a minute and a very thoughtful look on her face and she looks over to me and she says well what do you want to do and i say i want to be a comic book writer i'm tired of talking about it i want to do it but i I just i don't know what to do like i don't know how to level up i don't know what the next step is i'm not sure i'm not confident in my writing and she has this thoughtful look on her face for a minute again and then she looks over me she says well we'll just quit you know quit quit the job and and be a comic book writer and and i'm like oh well you know it's it's not that simple and 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 she's like well why not and then i i thought for a minute i was like well well and i couldn't really come up with a reason like why it wasn't just that simple and you know there are obviously economic and 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 sort of paying your rent kind of things to consider like oh yeah you gotta eat food yeah Yeah. um but she she said you know look if you hate your job and you want to do this other thing i believe in you i've seen you put the work in and you know, sit here and, and sputter your, your wheels. Like, if you think this is what will make it work, take a year off of work. We'll make it, we'll, we'll make the bills happen and we'll get it all done. And just, just try, like, give it a, give it a, give it a shot. So you don't like in 10 years regret not having tried. And, and let me tell you like that, I think that was the moment where my life really began. <laughs> like her having that conversation with me and, and encouraging me and supporting me and giving me that, essentially what is permission to ruin our lives for possibly um, <laughs> like I cannot stress how, how big an influence Catherine's been on my life and how much like every, every success I have, however big or small or however big it feels to me, like they're all because of that one conversation where she, you know, t- took a chance on me. Um, and I'm never going to forget that, but you know, so she talked me into it. I, I put up a, a, a wall and, and sort of argued about like why it didn't make sense for a while, but she eventually broke me down and f- you know for for my own good. And I took I quit my job, 
and I started sort of freelancing on the side to sort of supplement income. It wasn't what I was getting, but it was enough to get by. Um, and I, I went all in on comics. Uh, that was, that was like March or April of 2015. And after that, I, I started studying comics and, 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 and sort of putting scripts together and started building the foundation I needed. Like every day it was, it was nine to five, at least like I said, if I'm not going to be in work, these 40 hours are for this then. Um, and then eventually I started to sort of realize my own limitations and the limitations of the, the sort of resources that were available. There, there are a lot more now and it's just three or four years later, but like back then, like there wasn't a ton available. Um, and that, at least you had your literature and your school base yeah. to build no, off. I mean, of. like, yeah. like I said, like all that stuff, I thought I'd wasted time really did build the foundation without me realizing it, it was sort of like little Lego bricks building up. And like, I had this really strong foundation. Um, but uh, when I was working that first job after college at under, with my cousin in the marketing department at my school, I met a woman named Janine Frederick who had done comics experience. Um, and this was way back when the first sort of iteration of comics experience was happening. It was in-person classes in New York when Andy was working at Marvel. Um, and she did it, and she had a really good experience. And she had told me, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then I remembered it. And I was like, well, let me, let me Google this and let me check it out. And um, I looked into it. Um, I, I checked out sort of the course offerings and, and, and read some reviews. I saw the price tag and was a little hesitant because, you know, it's, it costs money. It's comparable to a college course. It's, it's not cheap, but, um, you know, I was like, what do I have to lose? What, what do I, you know, I, this, this might be the thing that unlocks it. So I took uh, the intro class with Andy, and that ran from February 2016 to uh, early April 2016. So it was about six weeks. And in that class, I wrote a script for a story called Embrace about a father and his autistic son and sort of just a slice of life story about a day in their lives and how hard it is for the father to teach the son how to tie shoes and how frustrating it was for the son to have to learn how to tie shoes and, and sort of how they butt heads and how shitty a day in their lives can be and sort of how they learn to live with one another and make it to the next day. Yeah. And, and that was, it's just a five page short story. Um, but it was, a you know, the whole class really unlocked comics for me. Like it helped me take all the tools and the education I had and sort of organize it into a framework for, for me to be able to create a comic. Um, it also gave me the rest of the tools that I wasn't missing or that I was missing. Right. Um, so I got out of that class in April, uh, like the second week of April, two weeks later, I had the finished, uh, story colored, drawn, lettered the, the whole nine. Um, and, and I got those pages back and I saw them and I was just looking at them and I was like, fuck, I love doing this. I want to, I want to, <laughs> it, it was like, I, I say this in every podcast interview, it was like crack. Not that I've ever done crack, but I imagine this is what like crack is like. It, it felt amazing. I, I just, there's immediately, there was nothing else in my life. I wanted to do more than comics. Um, and, and from there it was just, you know, it was that was it. I was making comics. 
That's that's awesome, man. Uh, kudos on you for the bravery and and uh, and your lady love letting you take that dive. You know, that's it's another cool thing about this community is not only are comic creators the coolest of people, but their wives and partners are <laughs> beyond cool, beyond insane as well. I know so many so many partners who have been like, yeah, sure, go fuck up our life and take a shot. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they've got to be. Um, I mean, there's a creator that you and I both know who I won't name who had had a sort of wife, fiance situation and children and then decided that it was time to, to, to make comics. And that on some days has been a very negative effect in his or her life um, because it changed the dynamic of the situation, right? It wasn't something anyone planned for. And I'm so grateful that I had somebody who was supportive from the start and that this was very much in the DNA of the relationship from the start. Because if, if today after five years and now I'm engaged, I'm going to be married soon. I decided I wanted to make comics. I feel like that would really fuck things up. it's it's all about timing and some of the source point creators do not have the best (laughs) timing (laughs) but source point is full of them like i can think of four individuals right now who would be fucked without their wives like would not be doing this whatsoever you know like look i don't want any names but i feel like travis Travis, the editor in chief, he he needs that support system at home. Read, go nuts. I would definitely go nuts running Source Point Press. I would lose my mind. Well, Laura is a very very special individual. By, by all accounts, <laughs> that is absolutely true. Laura, you haven't met Laura no, yet. No, no. Okay, the, when you eventually get to meet Laura, you'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> I within five minutes of knowing her, you'll be like, okay, I get it. I see because she really is. She's uh, she's not just supportive. Uh, she really is the unseen partner in all of this. Like not only having his back and being supportive of him, and you know making sure the household runs smoothly, but his kids are insane. Like, bunch, have you ever seen Brave? Bunch of gingers. Yeah, have you ever seen Brave? Yes. You know the Disney Pixar Brave. You know her little brothers, the three of them that tear oh, ass yeah, around, just bouncing off everything. That, that's his children. That makes sense. And the fact that you know Laura's got to deal with that on top of his own, you know, ridiculous yeah. childishness <laughs> is, is yeah. No, there's something special, man. And uh, you know, I give props to Aaron. I could never ever have spent the past year, eight years doing this show without her support like that's just not doable and i decided to start this podcast when she got pregnant like great timing like now that you're pregnant and need me more than ever i'm gonna go down in the basement and just smoke pot and make a podcast like (laughs) we're such a asshole sometimes as creative types well you know what this this year has been especially illuminating because like you know, grief came out last year and like I didn't really have my bearings in like the industry and I was still learning the ropes of like working conventions and stuff and I really didn't put 110% into promoting the book and it, especially because it was like sort of a repeat like it was a Kickstarter first and then it was a, a print book with source points so like you know I sort of had to like go through that cycle a few times I was a little exhausted with it but like this year I'm really like I've done a podcast 
four or five days a week for the last month and on top of that i've done three conventions i've been doing like print journalism sort of interviews like where people send me questions and i write the answers to them and then coordinating all this and like trying to set up like signings and stuff like i've i've done 120 percent of what i'm capable of doing and i'm still planning to do more and and i i, I don't even know where i was going with this because i'm so exhausted by all of it but the point I think, I think the point was that you know if I didn't have this incredible support network at home, I, I would I would have crashed and burned a long time ago. Like this this is a- and do it now, man, because you're getting married, and I'm are you planning on children? Yeah, and, and you know that. Then do this now. You know, the children <laughs> thing is really interesting because uh, like two three years ago when we first started, we were together for about two years. We were talking about like. You know, we're having those real serious conversations. Do you want to get married? Do you want to you know, do this, that, kids? And my sort of stance on it was like, like, you know, I didn't have a dad growing up. I'm super interested in being a dad. I would love to be a dad and like play with my kid and like throw the football around and like just like, you know, be there. Like do the things that I didn't have. Like I'm very much about like sure living those things I never got to. And uh, and Catherine and I had a conversation. I was like, you know, I'm. I was probably 28 at the time, 29 maybe. And I was like, listen, I would, I'd really love to be like a dad by the time I'm 35. Like, I don't want my kid to be 15 and me be 50 and like, you know, break yeah, break totally. a hip trying to hang out with him. Um, but now that like comics has sort of come along and I'm doing this, I'm like, well, you know, 40s looking like a good time to have a kid. And Catherine's a few years younger than me, so like it's always sort of been like I'm a little bit ahead of her biologically. So when we had that conversation when I was 20 or 29, she was 20, 25 or 24. Right. She was like, well, you know, I don't really want to right now. I want to do a career and all that. And like I understood, but like you know, we were sort of at odds on the topic. But she was like a soft no, and I was like a hard yes. And now today, now she's going to be 28 next week, and I'm 31. I'm like, eh, let's put it off. You know, like if we have a kid when I'm 50, like, you know, at least the kid will get to know me. And she's like, oh, come on, let's have a baby like yesterday. Like <laughs> she, she sees a little baby and like it's a little squishy face and like her uterus. Explodes. Yeah, she's there, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, don't take too long, but also at the same time, I'd recommend not rushing into it if you've got a few things you want to get out of the yeah. way first well, and accomplish. And but it's not as bad. Like, I'm 42 and my kid's eight. <laughs> and bad. it's not bad. It's not killing me. You know, I th- I was, uh, what, I was 36 when I had my first kid. So, you know, and I don't feel at all like I'm can't keep up with them or anything. So, you know, you got a few years yet before you can get a few things uh so you can get a few things done, which I would recommend because once they come, you're not getting nearly as much done. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's uh, it probably in the back of my mind. I I don't think about this very actively, but I think that's probably a big part of why I'm sort of like again going all in now, like sure media connections like putting out as many books as i can like you know traveling as often as i can because like you know i admittedly i am lacking when it comes to sort of like participating in the household and that's something that i'm trying to be better about but like laundry and like cleaning the bathroom and taking out the trash and stuff like that do your chores frank you know what as often as i'm here (laughs) I, i make an honest effort to do it but i'm just not here as often as i used to be and like some of that falls falls on me or well hey look i just took this year off i got to a point after c2e2 uh had a bad experience at c2e2 especially uh i had some tooth issues Mm. 
and uh, it, you know things just didn't go well. And that combined with a bunch of other stuff, I'd realized how much I'd overextended myself. So I've actually decided to take the rest of this year off. I mean, that's why I wasn't at Motor City, which is the first time I missed it in five years. Uh, putting New York on the back burner, putting, you know, the only show I'll be doing for the rest of the year will be Fan Expo Toronto. And sometimes you just can't be at all the parties, I realized. Right? Yeah. And I'd been going so far and doing so much, I was like, you know what? No, I've got this eight-year-old kid who needs a lot of attention right now, just because when they're eight, they sure. do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I didn't realize how much I needed a break. And I felt really it was hard to let go. It was really hard to let go of being at shows every weekend and having good times with your friends and, and you know, creating cool stuff. But once I did stop, I had this sense of relief that I did not expect that just like a wave over me. Like I, I couldn't believe how much I needed to just step back and kind of take a breath and, you know, kind of refocus and, you know. I, I spent so many years just diving in and going so hard that you almost don't, you forget that you can take a break. So as much as you're working hard out there, kids, do try to pace yourself a little. And if you can hold off on those kids till you get shit done, I highly recommend it. Yeah, you know. So uh, yeah, I was gonna say I, I what you're saying, like I, on some level, I grasp it and I understand it, and I even try to execute it in my own life. But like it's it's like you said, it's really hard. Like the AUFO, like I don't I don't want to miss anything. Like I don't want to not. Right. Every yeah. Show, it sucks. Every show I don't work is like a fan I didn't make or a, a sale I didn't make. Not that it's all about the money, but like you know. Or as simple as a good time that I didn't have. I love getting drunk <laughs> with source point people. Like I mean. That's 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 a huge part of me. I like hanging out with my friends, and I, I'm doing more of it this year. So like, you know that that there's that. But like, um, you're on the Toronto schedule, uh, are you? For, for for today, we'll see if I make it to uh, July, or August, August. Um, but yeah, I think I've got Boston and uh, Toronto that month, and I think I'm gonna drop Boston and do Toronto. Um, I think that I'd, I'll probably need the break by then, and I've done Boston two years now, so I'm ready to. I, I can. Plus, you're getting very close to the wedding as well, yeah, well so I'm sure dude, that's going to get in we, the way. We planned the wedding <laughs> based on what free weekends I had, like not because of what the wedding. And, and I, I feel bad about that now. Um, but no, what you're saying is 100% true. Like building in those breaks is really important. I didn't realize that until the end of last year. Like I went really hard my first year doing cons. I did, I think, 12 or 13 or 14, and, and one of them was San Diego and one of them was New York. Like I went, I went bonkers, but I really wanted to put my put the track down and, and learn to grind and you know prove myself to Travis and Josh and like you know make sure that like I was I was I was a part of this, not not riding it. You know what I mean? Um, right. But sure. when we got to like November and December, like when things slowed down and like I was able to sort of like decompress a little bit, uh, we took a vacation over Christmas to, to Paris and London and I, I proposed in Paris, but like having the, like, I didn't do any work when we were on vacation. I didn't write. I didn't, I didn't read any comics. I didn't do anything but eat like shit and, and like hang out and like see cool stuff. <laughs> and I came back so refreshed. Like when January hit, like my feet hit the ground running. I, I wrote two mini series that like 
I, I think are some of the best stuff I've ever wrote. Like I had so much more energy. I was ready. I started doing the source point digital stuff. Like I was able to take on more. And I like now it's, it, it's very much in my schedule to every six months, take a couple weeks. Um, Absolutely. Not, yeah, it's important. Like this weekend in, in, in the U.S. we have a, a Memorial Day. So I've got a buddy from New Jersey flying out for four or five days and we're going to go up to Napa and, and just hang out. I'm not going to look at my email. I'm going to chill, sit in the hot tub, drink wine. Nice. Like, See, I just did that. This was just the long weekend for us. We just had Victoria Day yesterday and I just sat around all weekend smoking pot and watching TV. Yeah. And I was like, I'm turning it all off for three days, yeah, no. like because sometimes you just have to. I, I've even gotten in the habit of doing like during the week. Like I said, I've been doing podcasts like a madman, and I work ten to six yeah. every day. And like I'm I'm writing a new book right now, and like I was taking a class. So how has that been being on the circuit? Has it been very like? Has it been a wide variety of conversations? Have you found yourself just answering the same questions over and over again? I'm curious. Uh, you know, it's all right. So let me throw this out like this has been the first like truly conversational podcast i've been on like there have been a couple that have verged on like conversational but generally it's you know how did you learn to love writing how did you get involved with source point press you know who are right, right, like those right, are important right. questions and like i think most podcasts don't have a ton of overlapping audience so like it's important to sort of touch the you know the basics like that well a lot is their time too a lot won't actually take an hour to sit down and just shoot the yeah. shit you know what I mean? It's a much, uh, it's a, it, even in podcasting, I've seen it progress where, you know, an hour used to be the basic, mm -hmm. right? That used to be, you know, most podcasts were about an hour. And I've seen them getting shorter and shorter and shorter to because people just don't have that attention yeah. span anymore. You most, know? most of the ones I've so, been on have been between 15 to 45. Uh, a couple have run over an hour, um, and those have been the better ones, I think. Like, um, I've never listened to any Joe Rogan, but everyone tells me that the Joe Rogan podcast, they run really long, so you get that shit out of the way at the beginning, and then you can get into the real meat and, like, dig into the good questions, like, in the sort of second half, and, like... Yeah, it's very true, but they fly by. Yeah, I mean, they do fly well, by. Sometimes I've listened to a three-hour Joe Rogan, and I felt like it was like forty-five minutes, and I was like, "Holy shit, where the hell yeah, did that well, time it's like, go?" It's like a good movie <laughs> if it's engaging and entertaining. Like you know, it doesn't feel like work, and like you know, just just like a novel, like a, a, a laborious novel for me is going to take me a long time and feel like work. But like an eleven hundred page Stephen King book you know, might not feel like work. <laughs> yeah, just to bring this full circle. All right. Well, let's focus ourselves right here then and talk about a very important matter at hand, and that's a little book called Dead End Kids, which is the reason we have come together – well, not the reason. Uh, it's actually been far overdue that we got your ass on this show. Uh, and now that you are here, we've had a delightful conversation getting to know Mr. <laughs> Frank Gogol quite a, quite a bit there. I had no idea that uh, – you had quite a story there, which led into grief. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about grief right now just because I do want to spend a bit of time as we're running low here on Dead End Kids. Uh, but Grief is a very, very cool book. Um, it is – well, you explain it better than I. Explain sure. Grief. It's, um, it's a <laughs> short story collection. Uh, all the stories are written by me. There are 10 of them with uh, sort of art and color and letters sort of 
structured around the stories to sort of match the content. So everyone's a genre story. So you got horror, sci-fi, superheroes, monsters, aliens. Um, but those genres are sort of wrapped around character stories about people going through sort of underrepresented or underrepresented uh, topics in comics, like what it's like to be a recovering drug addict or be a trans person or, or you know have a have a handicapped child, like in, we talked about earlier, embrace. Um, these are just things that have sort of come in and out of my life, have affected me personally, or people I care about very deeply personally. And um, I wanted to sort of shine more of the light on these topics, uh, but with like badass monster stories and super cool sci-fi stories. Um, and so we have this sort of fun little anthology or short story collection about these really important things that, you know, are now getting a little bit more of a signal boost than they were before the book existed. Right on. Now, you have brought pretty much the same team back together for Dead End Kids, yes? Yeah. Uh, so, Nana Tsavitakanen, who is a super talented Serbian um, illustrator, uh, he did, I, th- I want to say five, if not six of the stories in grief, so more than half of the book. Um, and I really just, we hit it off. He really got my style. He's He's a hustler. Like, I mean, he turns out pages like... I don't know, like a fucking conveyor belt, um, and then they're all good. Um, so we got him; he's, he's doing the, the lines and the colors, and then we got Sean Reinhardt, who's done all my lettering ever, uh, save for a couple of short stories uh, on letters again. And Sean's just—he's super talented. Um, letters are one of my favorite part of comics, and I think they're super underappreciated. And Sean has studied the craft of lettering, and like he—he he knows exactly what I want when I, I say something in a script. We had a very long conversation about what we were going for in Dead End Kids, and like he was right on the same page with me, and had like enhanced my ideas. Like, I mean, I couldn't have asked for two better collaborators on this. And uh, lay it out. What's the book about? Yeah, um, so I, I break it up into sort of two parts, right? So the pitch is it's it's three kids in the late 90s trying to solve their friend's murder. So it's kind of Stand By Me or The Goonies meets The Hardy Boys. Um, you know, it's 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 dark. It's gritty. It's pretty violent. So it, it's sort of separated from those things. Um, set in the 90s, so it's got its own sort of particular flavor and visual aesthetic to it. Um, but the, the reason I wrote the book was uh, – a little more than a year ago, I turned 30, and I started getting nostalgic for you know when I was growing up. You know, I, I remembered hanging outside with my friends and and you know playing in the woods and building forts and like you know the sort of stuff you see in like the Goonies and, and Stand by Me stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I was I was I was really like sort of missing that stuff. But then I remembered like you know my home life wasn't great. Like, and a big part of the reason I was outside was because things weren't awesome at home. Um, and that was very true for my friends. Like we all sort of grew up in this very poor area of New Jersey on the Jersey shore. And, you know, there's a lot of drugs at home and, 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 and just, just bad stuff in general. So me and like these three kids I grew up with who I sort of consider my, my core group of friends, um, we sort of had each other. Um, and you know, that reminded me of things like stranger things and stand by me. And I was like, Oh, I'd really love to write, you know, a, a sort of coming of age group of friends story like I love so much. Um, but my experience has been a little bit different. Like you get to the end of Stand By Me and you get a montage of pictures of the characters and a little bit of text about like what happened to them after that. And like one of the kids like grew up and became he's like one of the most messed up kids in the in the movie. And he grows up to become a really su- successful lawyer and ends up like getting stabbed in a McDonald's and dying like 
but but like yeah. at the end of these these you know the Sandlot and, and Stand by Me, you find out these kids they hang out for a summer, they sort of fix each other and and then they sort of grow up and grow apart and like that was really like not honest to my experience. Like I'm still very good friends with all the kids I grew up with. One of them is the best man at my wedding. So like it always felt dishonest to me that these these kids sort of grow up and grow apart and like that was the end of it. Um and also it kind of felt dishonest to me that like they fix one another. Like like think of something like uh the Breakfast Club. You have all these kids who like don't belong in the same room for whatever sort of high school political reasons. And they meet each other and they all sort of have these individual conversations where they sort of fix the little thing that's wrong with the the other one and sort of make them realize their shortcomings. But that's not like to me very realistic. Like my friends never they never fixed me. Um, you know, that life fixed me eventually, hopefully. But like we had each other to lean on, and that's the kind of idea I wanted to lean into with the book, that these four kids come from these broken homes and they sort of lean on each other for support. They don't fix each other because what 14-year-old has to answer to anyone else's problems? No one. So like they're, they're a support network, like a little microcosm of support. Um, and the core of the story is sort of one of these kids gets murdered and, and they lose that fourth anchor and the other three start spiraling because they don't have that complete support system anymore. It's, uh, it's fun. Uh, I had the pleasure of a preview. And I really enjoyed it. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd agree with your assessment of the word gritty, though. No, you know what? I'm, I'm sort of so one of the things. I'm still... What's cool about it is that it's actually kind of clean. That's what I like about the artists you're working with and stuff. Is that uh, it's not that it's not, you know, it's not overly clean and it's not overly gritty. It's like a nice in between. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? It's uh, it's it's very nice lines with some uh, cool kind of muted colors. And uh, it looks fantastic. It looks really yeah. good. Gritty for me is less about the aesthetic of the book and more about the content of the book. Like um, you read the first issue. When you get into the second issue, like it gets it gets dark. There's like a torture scene and like, you know, a lot more. It's a lot more violent come the second issue. So like it's heavy. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. heavy. Gritty is not the right word. And I, I'm still like working through sort of the pitch for like how to sell it at a con or something like that. Well, it's different, man. It's something you've come up with a unique idea where you've taken all these tropes like you've just mentioned, but uh, you have given them a a darker edge. You've definitely uh, taken them in a direction that they don't usually go. I mean, you know, Stranger Things was was neat in the way that it kind of did the same thing where it took a lot – like if you look back at all those movies that we used to watch, like The Goonies and Stand By Me, as much as Stand By Me is uh, is a Stephen King story, they weren't really horror stories. They weren't all that scary. They were a lot more adventurous, and they were more lighthearted, where you've definitely put a spin on that idea and, and given it a, a much harder edge, you know, a much darker tone that, uh, you know, as much as the book doesn't look like a dark comic book, it, it it's got an edge like i say you know what i yeah, mean yeah no definitely and and i don't want to like sort of ruin anything for anyone who might read the book but like that well i'm trying not to spoil it oh, at the same yeah, time absolutely. right <laughs> um, but like anyone who's read grief knows that like it's heavier subject matter but like at the core of it it's a book like about hope like these are stories about people struggling but sort of making it past their struggles or sort of getting that first step on that road towards getting past their struggles um, and, and this is very much a spiritual successor in that way. Like these are about, this, it's a story about kids who are 
going down this dark path and dealing with this dark thing, but like it's essentially it's about this question like do these things that fuck us up in our childhood have to be the things that fuck us up in our adulthood? Do we have to grow up to be, be these people because of these things? And is that a choice? And I, I want to, I want to believe that, that these, we, we have some agency in that matter. Like, you know, just because you have a bad childhood doesn't mean you have to grow up to be a bad person or like somebody who's always down on their luck and that has no control over their life. And like, that's one of the big things I try to explore in the story. And I, yeah, I won't say what happens because it's it's sort of a mixed bag, um, good and bad. But uh, if you read Greek, right? that's the big question right yeah. there, man. I mean, the big question is, are you going to let your life affect you as much as what you've been through? Can you come out stronger and help mold yourself? I mean, you can't ever totally get away from your experiences. I mean, it's the old argument of the balance of nature versus nurture, right? It's... Uh, what you've been through is what's made you what you are, but do you have the strength of will enough to work with that and make that into what you want it to be? Right? 100%. And then on top of that, do you have that's life, Do you man. have the people around <laughs> you to sort of help you get through that? Like, not to tie this back, like, I wouldn't be making comics if I didn't have the support network of, of my fiance in my life. Like, and like, you know, the people around you are just as responsible for lifting you up or bringing you down as you are. In, in some weird way like you probably have the most say in that matter but like there's no denying that the, you know the people around you either lift you up or bring you down <laughs> right 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 and it also you've you've chosen to surround yourself in general with with good people to work with i mean you, you went through your comics experience you know you put out grief which was very very cool and you kind of also had to take your hits over the past year as the new guy, oh, yeah. right? Like, I mean, you're the new guy behind the table, so you're going to have all these douchebags that we hang around with who are going to be fucking, they're going to be knocking on you just because of the fact that you're the fucking new yeah, guy, no, right? And, and luckily, luckily, I, you know, I was, I came in as sort of a wave of four people, um, and I, so I wasn't alone. I had Devin and and Andy and. God, Tim Bach, who, you know, who were sort of in my comics experience publishing class. Um, I think I, I probably right. went in a little harder than the rest of the, the, the class and did more cons and had more face time. So I was probably subject to some of that, that hazing. Um, but like, but look, you, you, you took it though, is the thing is you took it, you took it hard. You took it like a man. And now you're not really the new kid. Now you're not really looked at that. Like, that anymore you're part of the family now and uh you know no absolutely i mean uh you know it's a lot of what happens with source point press is your dedication and your devotion to that vision that is source point press and when you have shown which you absolutely have in abundance shown a little sacrifice and a little bit of dedication to this grand vision that's what. That's when you're in. That's when you're there. That's when everyone's like, okay, they get it. They feel it, and they're working for part of our family. And you know, it's a it's a weird thing because Source Point is made up of so many very different working parts. You know, there's a lot of us involved with Source Point who've never even made a fucking comic book, but we so believe in this that we dedicate whatever skills and artistic prowess we have to keeping this cool thing alive, right? It really is super diverse in that way. Like I look at other publishers that are about the same size that probably have a little more success, like like your Alterna and your Vault have a little more name recognition, right? But like this is like – 
they have a handful of creators and they've got like sort of a their corporate infrastructure they've got you know they're, they're the people sort of running the show but it, it, at the end of the day it's it's probably 10 or 15 or 20 people tops right i was count i was oh, counting yeah. the people sort of in the uh the source point facebook group and like sort of the people i've met there there are well over 100 people like as moving parts in this operation and like that's mind-blowing <laughs> it's cool isn't it it's like like i was saying like back in the up the river days when Steven and uh, you know Travis were just putting out up the river, um, and there was like four dude, four dudes, you know what I mean? And now it's uh, it's yeah, it's grown into this beautifully epic thing, and especially after the the Diamond Retailers Summit that just happened in Vegas, uh, Mr. Dirk Manic, Manic, Dirk Manic. Ooh, I just may have came up with a very cool alternative uh, character there, Dirk Manic. <laughs> The complete opposite to everything that Dirk Manning is. Um, anyways, <laughs> Dirk Manick. There we go. That's our new one. Um, Dirk delivered the the presentation uh, to all the retailers, and yeah, totally kicked ass. He gave an amazing presentation, and uh, you know, with SourcePoint and those other companies, like you mentioned. I think the difference is you're going to see guys like Travis at the yeah, show. At the booth. And you're going to see the, there's no other company that's got its own creators out there grinding just as hard as anybody well, else. Not, not on this level. And, like, I've definitely seen. And it's such a basic, basic, basic idea. It blows my mind that no one else did this to the extent or with the effect that SourcePoint has. It, it just blows my mind. How do you not consider bringing. You know, your entire roster out to sell their comics and kick ass and just have fun and show how much we care and how much we're into this and that we love comics, yeah, you know? I, well, I think a part of it is um, I, I work in marketing for my day job for a, a tech startup here in San Francisco. So, like, I'm very, like, data-driven and numbers-driven and do a lot of experimentation and stuff like that. Um, and part of it is I think these companies um, probably scale too quickly for, for their own growth. Like like Vault has some movie deals and like I don't I don't know the Vault guys very well like I've met Adrian and Damien a couple times and like I don't have any sort of relationship or, or feelings on the matter but like from from a purely objective point of view they've got some some movie deals and they've got some financial backing from what I understand um, and and they they came out very hot and quick whereas SourcePoint has been brewing sort of for six or seven years almost and slowly working their way up and we do what. 90, 90 different titles in our entire catalog going back, including stuff that's out of print now. And like, you know, and, yeah. and our, our first movie wasn't a big budget feature. It was sort of a B horror film that was done on a very tight budget, but from people who are very passionate about it. And, and, and these things have been done slowly and, and, and sort of smartly and, and like, the people who are doing are, are willing to yeah. invest the time and wait for the success rather than try and force it. And like again, like I don't know what's going on in Vault. I don't know what's going on in Alterna. Everyone at those companies has been incredibly kind and gracious to me, and I'm super happy for their successes. Um, but for where I'm sitting, like slow and steady wins the race. It's about bloody time, as I said before, that we got you on yeah. the show. Um, it's been an honor to watch your journey. Thank you. It's been very, very cool uh, to see you take your licks <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and get there, man. You are a grinder at heart, and uh, I, I appreciate that greatly. Um, congratulations on everything coming your way. 
and I can't wait for the world to experience Dead End Kids because it's a very, very, very cool book. It's uh, it's neat stuff. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it myself. So, what else is uh, what's the deal then? This is going to be in previews. It's in previews now. Um, it's in previews yeah. now. Holy shit! See, that's another thing about Source Point. I'm supposed to be the guy who's on top of all this shit, and I can't even keep up with how quickly books the wheel is moving now, ten, man. Ten oh, books God. a month, always on time. Like that's. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's in the May previews. So uh, the most recent previews catalog. Uh, it is due out uh, July 24th, so like off would be July 1st area for orders. The order code is May 191908, um, 191908. Um, and yeah, if, if you dig the pitch, listeners, um, go check it out. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty cool. Like, go to your local comic shop. Tell them to order Dead End yes. Kids. From Source Point yes. Press, whether it be Gotham Central, whether it be Comic uh, Connect, whether it be Altered States, whether it be the Silver Snail, wherever it be in the Ontario land, uh, get out there and order that shit because, Frank, we're going to hopefully uh, solidify soon enough that we're going to get his ass up here to Toronto. Yeah, it's, it's on the schedule. I say I even said I even said hey, that in American pronounce, Toronto. Pronounce Do you like that? I, I feel at home. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to bridge I, the but gap. If I'm making the effort to not say the T and you're saying the T, we're just all gonna be dancing in the wrong direction. Yeah, I shouldn't screw that. We're in Come Toronto, on. kids, and uh, it's gonna be good times. But our lineup is insane uh, for Sean Fan Daly. Expo this year. Uh, Mister coming out. Uh, well, Sean Daly. Daly. <laughs> Sean Daly is a special and unique creature. I can't he is the one individual who nothing is expected of at a show because uh, he doesn't ever. He always gets his own table because he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't really pitch. He doesn't really sell. Um, if Sean's at a show, he's drawing. So he has this unique uh, distinction of not having to do well, the usual source well, that's, point that's grind. The grind, right? Like they, they're like you know Jay Fosgit and 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 Seth the Moose. Like they're they're there to draw and, and make missions, right? They're, exactly. they're not the salespeople. Right. They help sell the books by being in existence. Exactly. And we make sure that he comes over and, and, and shows his predace once in a while. But you've got Frank Gogol. You've got motherfucking Ben Goldsmith. You've got motherfucking Bob Sally and motherfucking Stan Kanaka. Eight years in the making. Uh, not to mention uh, hometown Mr. Devin Wong, of course, Devin. will be there as well. Um, but, uh, Stan, dude, I can't even tell you how stoked I've been eight years. I've been trying to get Stan out here and he's he finally a coming. Never, never that been out here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, he never, so I think he's been to Toronto in the past, but he's never done the show or anything like that. So super, super excited that fan expo coming up at the end of August. Kids pay attention for that. But, uh, for now, um, most comic cons source yeah, point will be there if it's got the word <laughs> and if not in it we'll be there and if not like i said get to your lcs dead end kids 
by Mr. Frank Google. Frank, uh, I'm sorry it took so long to get you on the show, but I cannot thank you enough for this uh, very pleasant, very intense, very awesome conversation. And thank you, for, man. I mean, uh, you know, obviously you're okay with doing that with your obviously with the material you put out and the conversations that uh, like we just had. But still, it's very brave of what you've gone through, and it's very brave and courageous to share. Uh, all this stuff like manner uh, with the people so thank you, know, you sir it's, for me it's important like it's 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 about normalizing the stuff like just because you had something wrong at home or there's something going on with you or you're on medication or you're in therapy or whatever like that doesn't mean you're a bad person or or that there's something wrong with you or that you don't deserve to be treated with respect it's like if, if me talking about this shit can make it like that much more normal like it's it's 100 percent worth it like i didn't I didn't write grief to make a million dollars. It's not a million book by any means, but like, you know, when I get those emails after a convention saying, yeah, the story spoke to me. Thank you for writing it. Or, or at New York Comic Con last year, I sold the book to, to a trans man and, and he went home and read and, and came back the next day and cried in front of me because oh. like, I mean, like, these are things that I'd never expected, but like, that's, that's the point. Like, you know, we, we just, people need to take care of each other. Like, and like, I'm just trying to do my small part. It's a beautiful way to end it, Frank Gogol. <laughs> Kids, check out Dead End Kids at your local comic shop. But for now, that is all we are going to have this week on An Elegant Weapon. Take it easy.